Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. There uh, isn't anybody in this country, I would venture, or almost no one in this country, is not familiar with these words. A couple hours ago, I learned about troubling allegations about my conduct and character, and I'm here tonight to address them. First, I want to say these allegations are false, categorically untrue, every one of them. I will defend myself as hard as I can with all means at my disposal. So there's Patrick Brown, the former now leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario on Wednesday night. He said he would continue as an MPP, but then subsequently the next day said he would uh, quit, of course, as leader. He was slated to run against Kathleen Wynne, of course, the premier of the province and the leader of the Liberal Party of Canada in the June 7th election. When Premier Wynne became aware of Mr. Brown's issues, here's in part what she said. I did watch the story uh, last night, and um, I would say to those young women that uh, they were very brave. And I, I want to, I acknowledge that, um, that it was very courageous for them to step forward. I would also say to them that um, they, I hope that they will find the supports that they need now, because they did a very difficult thing. So there's the Premier of Ontario and uh, her reaction to Mr. Brown. There's a lot going on, a lot more to be heard. Kent Hur as well, the uh, Liberal former cabinet minister from uh, Calgary, is also in a situation where he's been accused of being um, sexually, verbally uh, aggressive toward women. And uh, Justin Trudeau has accepted his resignation, Hur's resignation, from cabinet. Mr. Hur says he's going to continue to fight. Um, this is this is a continuing development, a continuing issue of allegations of sexual harassment, sexual assault being brought forward. And for years, for decades, women have put up with aggressive behavior from men. Now... For women to come forward and explain what has happened to them and, and not sit back and not more than less accept what happened to them is exactly the way it should be. The Me Too campaign, of course, began that not so long ago. But the question then becomes, and I've seen this a great deal on Twitter and I've seen it on, uh, on email and I've heard it in phone calls with friends. The question then has become, well, if you are anonymous and you bring your complaint forward anonymously, as was done in Patrick Brown's case, are you not denying the man the right to innocence until proven guilt? So he's done now, and his political career more than likely is finished. And this is something that will trail him for life. Is it fair the way it is? Should the women have been named? Did everything move along too quickly? We're going to talk about that, and joining me, from uh, Hamilton is Jeff Manishin, former Crown Attorney, now criminal law specialist, and partner at Ross and McBride. And uh, Jeff, thank you for taking the time. I know this is a very significant issue to you. We talked about it off the air, and you're very passionate about this. So let's uh, let's go to where it, the fundamentals of where you stand on what has taken place over the last several days. 
Sure, and and it isn't only the last several days. It's been really for many months. Well, I want to uh, talk about the Patrick Brown situation, and then we can expand into sure, more. Sure, absolutely. The, the difficulty I have, and you use the phrase presumption of innocence, I'll be careful to point out at the outset, of course, Roy, the presumption of innocence is applicable in a criminal law context. In a civil world, civil litigation world, there's no presumption of innocence. And in society generally, we might say we don't have a legal presumption of innocence. It's a phrase that's used. It's a particular principle applicable in the criminal law context. So we'll set that one aside. In addition, let's identify that issues of sexual abuse and sexual harassment are clearly widespread in society, and they have been for a long time. And to the extent that society is addressing them by a recognition, by people coming forward and saying, this has happened to me, and potential sanctions can be imposed, and impact has been felt with a view to trying and trying to ensure that maybe at some stage in the future, women and everyone have a right to be free from sexual harassment and abuse. And men and everyone will treat one another with respect and uh, compassion. So is, it, is what happened to Patrick Brown fair then? When I talk about presumption of innocence, I'm not just talking from the law and the legal context. We're talking about the presumption that society has that if you're if you're not in, if you're not in court, if you haven't been tried, if there hasn't been a, a, a case brought forward and made against you, then if you're essentially condemned, and I'm not I'm not protecting Patrick Brown by any means, but if you're condemned then that presumption of innocence has been violated. Well, and in fact, Roy, let's... So I wanted to give you those as a precursor. So my views are expressed. I think it'd be important to put them in a balanced kind of context. So let's now... Never mind the legal concept. Let's let's give Patrick Brown the benefit of the presumption of innocence. Never mind legally, just practically. We don't know whether he did or didn't do it, and maybe he didn't do anything. Well, he's got an election coming up within five months, and on the strength of two anonymous complainants alleging things that happened many years ago, he's put in a position where, A, a whole bunch of his staff resign, and B, he's put in a position where he initially says, I'd like to defend it because they're false, and winds up having to resign. And we say, gee, what's the fairness in that? And if we went a little bit further and we say the current premier of Ontario has already judged it, has said, I do think it's brave for these young women to come forward. Well, if we stay with my presumption of innocence, how do we know they're brave women that have come forward? Who knows why it is they're making the allegations? Do we want to conclude without having any kind of inquiry that they're brave women and they came forward? And do we want to therefore conclude he must be guilty because the allegations are made? And the mere fact the allegations are made will be subjected to no uncritical analysis, no critical analysis. We're going to just jump to the conclusion they are survivors, they're courageous, and we're going to basically not simply presume that he's culpable, we're going to conclude it. Is that fair? And then we go further, and so the premier of the province says, oh, there will always be due process, there should be due process, there's a legal process that has to be part of this. What's the legal process for Patrick Brown right now? I ask rhetorically. The correct answer is, right now, nothing. He, he has phantoms to fight against. He has people who have come forward anonymously. He has no opportunity to confront his accuser. He has no opportunity to challenge their position. He doesn't really have an opportunity to put his case forward. And in any event, it doesn't matter because he's been put in a position where he's resigned. So his political career is in the garbage. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. What I mentioned before the break was, been said, and, and I think 
properly and, and, and accurately argued, men have gotten away with being sexual predators for many years and largely without consequences. So now it's said the tables are turned and victims have an opportunity to fight back. Where does that fit into the equation if it does? Well, what we uh, want to identify, Roy, is it's correct. It's been under-identified and under-acknowledged and under-appreciated. And so certainly part of the exercise now in society is to get those attitudes turned and ensure that where it has taken place, it's dealt with appropriately and women are provided with a safe environment. What you don't want to have is an overreaction, though. What you don't want to have is a rush to judgment. What you don't want to have is say it was under-sanctioned in the past, so let's tar everyone with the same brush now no. without any process. That's what you have to be careful for. We can't have an unchallenged acceptance. All right. Now, precedent comes into play, or it doesn't. I'll ask you to decide. The John Gameshi case has been brought up on a number of occasions over the last several days. Where does Gameshi's case fit into the stories of Patrick Brown and, 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 uh, and Mr. Herr, Kent Herr? Well, if we were to ask Andrea Horvath, the leader of the uh, NDP, she'd, she'd answer on the justice system in two words, John Gameshi. And I'd say, Andrea, you didn't look at the reasons for judgment. The trial judge rejected the evidence of the complainants because of some significant falsehoods, some manifest unreliability to their testimony. And at the end of a trial, the judge was not satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt, substantially because essentially he concluded the complaints were not fair and candid and honest. That was at the core of it. Now, it didn't prevent people from saying we believe survivors and treating the women as survivors, although the judge had basically not gotten to that stage because you don't have someone as a survivor if there hasn't been a finding of culpability by the accused. But John Gameshi was certainly a touchstone, was certainly a trigger point, was certainly a very hot-button issue, mm-hmm. and could it have contributed to society's concerns about women uh, making allegations of sexual abuse, of sexual misconduct in the context of a relationship, and highly emotionally charged at that? Gameshi is one, and we have several that are on the go. Bill Cosby is another. Yeah. So what you have right now, Roy, is certainly a very heightened sensitivity in all aspects, from the military to the RCMP, from Mm -hmm. the legal profession to politics to entertainment. So what legal advice would you give to every man about dealing with women, how to address women, how to speak to women, how to share humor, how to behave when out on a date? Has has, Has the relationship between men and women become a minefield? Well, the way I'd phrase it is, I don't know how to call it a minefield, because I say if you, if you treat women with respect, if you treat women with sensitivity, if you look into any relationship as something that's got to be a shared and partnership and, and a, proper, um, a proper understanding and appreciation for the rights of each, that's the way you conduct yourself. But here's part B of the equation, Roy. I would say, and today, should the man feel at ease that if he does so, he is safe against any allegations for the indefinite future? And the answer is no. The answer is no. He can never feel entirely assured that notwithstanding he's behaved appropriately, there could be some circumstance where something in the future might either be misinterpreted or even the subject of unreliable, inaccurate, or even dishonest allegations. Now, one, of the, things, one of the things that I've heard, Jeff, is that men I've talked to say have said exactly what I suggested. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to say because they don't know what the reaction is going to be. Well, they, so so, so whether, it's a, whether it's correct or not, it's the perception of the men I've spoken with 
And so their question is, what do I do? I understand you're saying deal with it sensitively. That would be my response too. But is there a, is there a legal requirement or not? Is, is, has, the legal, has the legal framework, not framework, but the legal uh, landscape changed at all? I wouldn't say that the legal landscape has changed. You still have the benefit of the presumption of innocence. You still have the, the opportunity to, to be able to make full answer in defense against an allegation. But, Roy, the real landscape is not so much the legal one as the reputational one that the allegation itself can have highly destructive uh, con- uh, uh, consequences, that facing a criminal charge and being acquitted can have lifelong adverse impact. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem. So I think it's, it's a bit of a compliment to say, I don't know how to behave. Really? You don't know how to treat another person with respect? You don't know how to treat another no, person No, no, I don't think that, that's not the point. Sure they're, that's not the point they're making. Well, what they're gonna, I, it's not I the point they're making. Part. They don't know how that they don't know how what they traditionally how they traditionally behaved is going to be received, and their traditional behavior from the guys I've talked to, I would presume because I know them, would have been respectful. They just don't know. It's a legitimate point to raise. Let me ask you this: in the two minutes we have left, sure. have you dealt with it in a, from a legal perspective? Have you have you been in court dealing with cases like this? Well, I have for a, for many years, and it's it's not new. Several years ago, I represented a guy charged with what was then rape and forcible confinement. He got out on bail, and the Crown was bringing an application for a bail review, and there were women picketing outside the courthouse saying rapists shouldn't go free. And I, I managed to have him, I, I kept his bail order, and I had evidence to show that the complainant had lied. And ultimately, police investigated, and she was charged with public mischief. And she was convicted. She pled guilty to it. And that happened, I would say, 25 years ago, and I've dealt with other cases over the years since then, and even more recently, where there are allegations made of sexual assault, sexual abuse, and there's very good reason to question, mm-hmm. very good reason to challenge. That's continued, but what, what has really changed, as I say, is heightened public sensitivity. And the world of social media can ensure that a case that might have gotten coverage in the Hampton Spectator some years ago can now get international, permanent attention that's un- that you cannot eradicate. Now, and no one's saying that... Uh, either Mr. Her or Mr. Uh, uh, Brown are not responsible in the way that women have described them as being responsible for their behavior. But no one is saying either that uh, you should you should summarily be convicted based on hearsay and and just anonymously. Uh, lodging complaints. There's a, there's a, there's a, the, the anonymous, the anonymous part of it has it really is rubbing people, guys, maybe women as well, the wrong way. Oh, certainly. And I happen to see Roy, and this wasn't so much specifically for anonymous. Nova Scotia, their leader of the opposition, that's Jamie right. Bailey, there that's was right. an independent third party investigation that was conducted. Yeah. That's at least some form of process. Yeah. Well, it's not possible if you have an anonymous complainant. But the concept of an opportunity to have something, never mind the trial process, criminal law, even civil litigation, if there's a mechanism for a process where you at least have a chance to confront your accuser and present your defense and have a fair and impartial determination. Yeah, yeah. you know, That's it's in, and, and Jeff, we, the, the place we are now with these developments of these cases, and they're happening all over the world, is also a time where we might want to just hit the pause button and decide what we're going to do in order to make it fair for everybody. And fair for everybody is the key phrase, right? Yep. Thank Not you. simply fair for those who have made the allegations. Counselor, always good talking to you. Thank you oh, so much. My pleasure, right? Thanks. Bye. Jeff Manishin, partner at Ross and McBride in Hamilton, former Crown Attorney, now criminal law specialist. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Joshua Boyle, the man whose excursion into Afghanistan seems rather strange, took his eight-month pregnant wife,
hiking in Afghanistan and was kidnapped by, we're not sure who, sure who Taliban, he says. And uh, then he and his wife, Caitlin, had uh, several more children. And according to Boyle, his conversations with the Taliban seemed more like he was in control than they were in control because he'd instruct them, he said, on how to pray. That was in the McLean's article and uh, an, an interview that he gave. Then there was that rather unusual meeting between Mr. Boyle, his wife, their kids, and the Prime Minister of Canada, the Prime Minister who doesn't meet with other Canadians who've been victimized by terrorism but bounced Mr. Boyle's baby on his knee. Strange stuff going on. Now, Joshua Boyle is facing additional criminal charges. He's been in jail facing charges. Now there are more, including sexual assault with ropes and criminal harassment. Scott Newark, former Alberta Crown Attorney, Executive Officer with the Canadian Police Association and Security Advisor to the Governments of Canada and Ontario, adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University, joins us. Scott, what do we make of this? What's going on in this case? Now we have new charges. What? Can you lay this out? Can you understand it? Yeah, well, I think this is uh, pretty much like uh, we actually uh, spoke uh, the last time about this case. Uh, this guy has still not entered a plea. Uh, there's been no application for bail. It turns out now that the latest adjournment is going to be another two months, so that's going to be like three months without any of that being done. As I say, when we last spoke about this, my sense was that what was coming here was likely some kind of a case resolution plea bargain. And as it turns out, this uh, latest appearance, uh, his lawyers had actually... Uh, you know, gee, what a surprise. Uh, they did a, uh, got a psych assessment done on him to see if he was fit to stand trial. Uh, and it turns out he was, but they go to court after having a meeting, a pretrial meeting, even though he hasn't entered a plea, uh, to uh, say, well, we'd like to get a full psych assessment, please, so could we please have him remanded for two months in order for that to be done. Um, I'll just give you my uh, perspective. Yeah, you don't get psych assessments. Uh, if you're planning on disputing the facts. Uh, so I think what is coming here is some kind of ultimate uh, case uh, resolution. But it struck me as particularly um, uh, interesting, if you will, that, uh, you know, that they actually, went, his lawyers actually went to the point of seeing whether he was fit to, stand, uh, to, uh, to even stand trial, whereas a matter of a couple of weeks before that, uh, he was apparently fit enough to have a meeting with the prime minister. Weird. It is. It is. It is beyond weird. It is really beyond weird. How, how do you? How do you fit? Uh, how do you fit that, that meeting with Justin Trudeau into into the big picture? Or, or, you, you can't. It doesn't. Well, it doesn't you know, make it, any it's sense. Funny. There's been some. There's been good media reporting about this, and one of the uh, editorials I think was in the the Sun made the point that they thought, oh, they're asking for this psych assessment so they can say that he's uh, not criminally responsible. No, no, I got so that, yeah. It was insane. Now it's called not criminally responsible. Yeah. I'll tell you something. If, uh, if that is the case, I don't think it is, but if that w it turns out to be the case, I've had cases before as a prosecutor on that, uh, and that's what they're saying is that he was not criminally responsible at the time because he was, you know, uh, insane. Uh, what you would do in rebuttal of that is you'd call evidence of people who had interactions with him. So, you know, I'd certainly call his parents and... Who was that other guy that he met with over there? Oh, yeah, what was his name? Justin Trudeau. Mm-hmm. You know, Mr. Trudeau. So, I mean, wouldn't the prime minister, wouldn't it be logical to assume that, that if the man is unstable, well, that our prime minister would have picked up on that? Yeah. 
I mean, that's why I, I say, I mean, I think what is coming here is ultimately some kind of uh, plea resolution. The new charges, they just really replaced it. It sounds like maybe they've had a more thorough interview. One little piece that is interesting, the original set of charges had uh, two alleged victims, one being a child. That charge has since been dropped and it's now been replaced. There's a single victim for all 19 counts, and it looks like there might be some sort of piling on some multiple counts arising out of, you know, a, a single incident. But it sounds like they've essentially got more thorough information from the uh, the person that is the complainant and uh, replaced the uh, the charges with this larger group. I hesitate to ask, but what is sexual assault with a rope? Um, you know, if, for example, you're engaging in what is a sexual assault, that is sexual contact without consent, and say, for example, you're hitting the person with a rope, that would constitute sexual assault with a weapon in this case being a rope. All right, so if there is a deal made, what kind of deal would possibly be offered in a situation like this? A couple of things about this. And, I mean, in fairness, this will mean that by the time, let's say that it happens when he comes back to court at the end of March, this will mean that he will have spent uh, three months in pretrial custody. It is entirely appropriate that he be given credit for that. I don't normally agree with it because it usually applies to repeat offenders. This is a guy without a previous criminal record, so it's entirely appropriate he get credit for that. It is also appropriate that he be given, or the court at least take into account, the impact um, on his behaviors of what his previous five years have been. It's not an excuse, but it's obviously something that's relevant. Although, as I was explaining to one friend, um, I hope that uh, if, you know, for example, they give him say, for what's called a conditional sentence, which is really like sort of quotation marks, home imprisonment. I just hope that if they do that, that they also include uh, mandatory participation in the uh, the new OUTA program. Yeah, Mr. Trudeau's favorite. You know what that is? Yeah, that isn't that for the ISIS types? No. Oh. OUTA? Oh, One-way ticket go. to Afghanistan. Oh. Sorry. Yeah, no, sorry. Scott. <laughs> um... Mr. Boyle also has that history with the Cotter family. Yep. And for many Canadians, there's the cut-and-dried aspect of court cases. There's the law that is applied, the charges that are laid, and the negotiations perhaps for a plea deal. And then there's the cut-and-dried thrust of the, of, the, of the courtroom, except when you were in the courtroom, then nobody knew what the hell was going to happen. Um, but, except me. Except, except you, of course. Except, yeah, that's why they hated to go into court with Mr. New York. But in all of this, is there? This is what people want to know: Is there anything lurking in the on the in the in the shadows that might scream um, payment for government not having done this job for me? Um, I don't think so. Uh, simply because the history, I was aware of this case and followed it a little bit. There really was not a particularly uh, direct Canadian involvement or even the request for Canadian involvement. In large measure, I think, because of what you described in your introduction to this, uh, his uh, unusual behavior with the uh, Haqqani group that were holding them hostage. Um, I don't think so, but I have to tell you, I also uh, was flabbergasted when uh, the Prime Minister, just behind closed doors without telling anybody and still refusing to explain why, gave Omar Khadr $10.5 million. So I don't think that's likely going to happen, but, you know, you never know. 
So not directly a precedent, but if it turned out to be a precedent of sorts, we shouldn't be hugely surprised. Well, I think that more than anything else, and it's true about the, the Qatar payoff, it's true about the Almalki payoff, I think Canadians have a right to know why it is that our government is doing this. And that's what the Prime Minister has refused all along to, uh, to do, to tell people why he actually do it. I mean, he does that, oh, I'm as outraged as you are, then why did you do it? Yeah. Give us the legal opinion that you based your decision on. I don't think that it is the government. I think it's him. I know, that it, I know his caucus lines up behind him, but I tweeted earlier this week, and I truly believe that if you were to take all the Liberal members of Parliament and all of the Liberals in the Independent Senate, and you were to talk to them independently in a, in a room without recording devices, and you were to say, do you really agree with this? Yeah. You know, it is interesting, too, if you remember, uh, the information about the payoff to Omar Khadr was leaked to the media by somebody inside government. Mm-hmm. And then they, want, they were going after that, that whistleblower. They were going, the government yeah. was going to go after him and teach him not to do that. So it's, it's I, I am more concerned about the lack of transparency and accountability about this. Look, we elect governments to make decisions, but we're also entitled to hold them to account for the decisions that they make and yep. the reasons why they uh, make those decisions. And it's the refusal to pro- provide that information that I think is the most disturbing. All right. Great talking to you, Scott. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney and uh, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Here's a story I'm sure you've seen over the last couple of days, and it's very disturbing. An 8-year-old boy has died from flesh-eating bacteria infection, and this is several days after falling off his bike. There were a series of amputations. They saved, uh, failed to save his life, and it's always a challenge to overcome this flesh-eating disease with uh, antibiotics. And so the question now is, is this necrotizing fasciitis, I think that's what it's called, an example of antibiotic-resistant bacteria striking? Jason Tetro joins us, Canadian microbiologist, the germ guy, the author of The Germ Code and The Germ Files, joins us from Edmonton. Jason, a a tragic story, a a frightening story. What is this flesh-eating disease? Well, actually, it is something that is... um a bacterial infection primarily. Um, and it is a, sort of one of these things that we call a progressive disease. In other words, um, it can happen pretty much to anybody as long as a few conditions are met. And unfortunately, in the case of this eight-year-old boy, it was met. First off, you have to have uh, an injury that gets below the standard protective barrier of the skin. And in this case, he had a major gash. Uh, I think it was in his uh, thigh. Um, Secondly, the bacteria have to be able to stay in there. Now, normally, and I've I've actually gashed myself uh, in the leg a few times in the past, um, there'll be a, a disinfection routine before they sew you up with the stitches. And usually that works, but sometimes they miss. And when that happens, these bacteria which really like to have you know, a nice, warm, and moist environment with lots of food, will start to grow. And then there are a number of, about a dozen different types of species that produce a particular kind of protein that, and I hate to say it, it actually dissolves your flesh. That's why we call it flesh-eating disease. And while it's doing that, it's growing, and eventually it gets into your bloodstream and starts to spread around your body, 
And this can happen in as little as 24 to 48 hours. And by 72 hours, you really are in a life or death situation, even though you may not even realize it until you've reached that 48-hour stage. And so this is why they moved him from hospital to hospital, and they... They did amputations in order to try to get ahead, ahead of the uh, of the bacteria, and it, yeah. and it didn't work. Is this a, should we be looking at this and saying maybe this has something to do with what we've been talking about, and that is the antibiotic resistant bacteria are more and more making their presence known, and we've been told that our healthcare system, as we know it, may be toast. Well. I wouldn't necessarily call the healthcare system toast at the moment, but what it is definitely demonstrating is that we are starting to see more and more of these antibiotic-resistant bacteria actually getting access into our bodies, um, sometimes just simply through no fault of our own. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once they take hold, if we're not dealing with them immediately, as soon as we find out about the injury, then what ends up happening is they they do get to have that sort of hold on your body. And as soon as that happens, even if you are treating with antibiotics, um, your chances are probably less than 50-50 that you're going to win the battle. And what's really troubling about this, and this is where the healthcare system sort of needs to step up, is we can actually identify these bugs in as little as an hour to two hours. But unfortunately, in many of the healthcare institutions, that opportunity is just simply not there. Mm-hmm. In order for us to be able to deal with these types of infections, we need to have a much better uh, opportunity to win the race, if you will. I know people say we're at war with germs, but when it comes to something like this, it's really a race. Mm-hmm. And when you're dealing with an antibiotic-resistant bacterium, you're kind of dealing with the same bolt. Well, a very tragic situation, and uh, a little boy. Oh, one more question: How often does this? How frequently does this uh, disease make its make itself known? Well, it's actually not that uncommon. Um, I mean, granted, it, it's still only uh, a few hundred uh, to you know a few thousand cases worldwide. But the thing is, is that we are starting to see more and more of this happening. And if you remember correctly, back about a few months ago, we saw some people who had sore throats who ended up getting the same disease. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing. Um, These bacteria are getting into your body. They're not being treated well with the antibiotics. They get into the bloodstream, they spread, and then they find that hold, and then they start doing that uh, enzyme that starts eating you up. So Mm. it's not just whether or not, you know, you fell into... Um, a lake like that one woman a few years ago, or you, you crashed your bicycle, uh, even if you have something like a sore throat, we're really getting to a point now where it's really good to have a relationship with your healthcare professional so that you can be on top of these. Okay. So you have a better chance at winning that race. Jason, it's always good talking to you. Thank you so much. Microbiologist Jason Tetro, he's the author of The Germ Code and The Germ Files, joining us from Edmonton. We're back after this. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. I have to tell you this, last weekend, I got in touch with Patrick Brown's people, the now former Progressive Conservative Party leader for Ontario. I got in touch with his media people, who are no longer his media people, and he's no longer the leader, of course. And I asked that he come on the show and respond to something that Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne had said about uh, minimum wage, and they said, well, he hasn't got the time. He's doing this, 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 this. We can't get him on. Would you like him on next weekend, Roy? And I said, 
Well, let's wait and see if something happens. So when Ontario Progressive Party leader, former Patrick Brown, stepped in front of television cameras on Wednesday to declare his innocence of anonymous charges by two women he'd sexually harassed both and sexually assaulted one, Brown looked and sounded very nervous and extremely unsteady. And we'll have a listen. I know the court of public opinion moves fast. I've instructed my attorneys to ensure that these allegations are addressed where they should be in the court of law. In short, I reject these accusations in the strongest possible terms. It's not my values. It's not how I raised. It's not who I am. And I can't say whether he did what he's accused of doing or whether he didn't do what he's accused of doing. And I can't condemn the man for sounding nervous at that particular time. He's been a guest on this show, and I told him I wasn't particularly impressed with his job as the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party leader. But that situation was one that nobody prepares for. Is he innocent? Is he guilty? I don't know. But I do know that Vic Fideli, who is the temporary leader of the Conservative Party of Ontario, the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario, the interim leader, had a few things to say about Mr. Brown. Together with caucus, I am asking Mr. Brown to take a leave of absence from the Ontario PC caucus while he has a chance to defend himself. So there's Patrick Brown. And then there was also the story of Kent Hur, the only liberal member of parliament from Calgary, was also a member of, or was a member of, Justin Trudeau's cabinet until he was accused of being a creep of uh, harassing women, particularly in, uh, in elevators. They didn't want to be in elevators with him. Mr. Trudeau, who was in Davos, enjoying himself at the economic meetings, had this to say. Obviously, as I've said uh, many times throughout this week, it's really important to believe and support uh, any woman who comes forward with uh, allegations of sexual harassment or, or sexual assault. Uh, and that's exactly what uh, my government and myself, we do. Uh, I don't need to remind anyone of the positions I've taken from the very beginning uh, of my leadership on uh, issues surrounding this. I am unequivocal in uh, my support uh, for women who step forward with, uh, with allegations of this nature, uh, and that continues. There's no question that emotionally you want to stand with women who step forward and say, I was sexually abused and sexually harassed, and whatever the complaint may be about a specific individual male, you want to, you want to stand with them. But there's also the case that people have the right to be represented, people have the right to say their piece, people have the right to defend themselves. And if you start to compromise that, then you compromise one of the cornerstone values of a, of a democratic society. So I, I started to wonder, how would things perhaps have turned out had Mr. Brown and Mr. Herr engaged the services of a public relations firm and crisis management team to uh, assist him in making his case, their cases, publicly? And joining us on the program is Alan Edwards. He's a partner at Peak Communications in Vancouver. They're an award-winning public relations and crisis management firm. Alan, thank you very much for the time. Would uh, both Patrick Brown and Kent Hur have benefited from a crisis management public relations agency representing them or at least advising them? 
I think everybody benefits from a public relations agency representing them if if they have something that's valid to say. And the first thing, of course, legal counsel would ask, and I would say any public relations issues and crisis manager would say is, what are the facts? And once you determine the facts, then you would determine a strategy. And the strategy would be one of openness and transparency, because certainly as an elected official, that's what you must stand for. And that doesn't change when there are allegations leveled against you. Then there has to be a plan. But this all unfolded very, very quickly. And uh, so the best time to prepare for a crisis in our area is six months before it happens. Well, in this case, uh, matters this week unfolded very, very quickly, Mm -hmm. and there wasn't a lot of time. I, too, listened to the news conference, uh, uh, single-person news conference held by Patrick Brown, and I know that he was very nervous and very uh, seemed to be very unprepared, but um, he certainly strongly uh, denied the allegations but he didn't offer any information beyond that other than he would uh, he would fight the allegations and challenge them and like to have his day in court it's interesting you say that because one of the thoughts i had as i was watching when he left was well that wasn't enough You, you should have given us more you should have been more specific about what it is you were going to do if you had a chance maybe one chance to make your case and i don't think you made it very well well, I think that's true, and I, it was very terse, and it wasn't an adequate explanation of where he stood, not only on the issues at hand, the, the allegations that were made against him, but, but really his moral fiber and what he stands for. And certainly if I had a client that was in that situation, that client would be prepared and ready to respond to questions as well, and I think that was what was lacking. He did not um, in any way respond to questions. He left very hastily and left reporters in his wake. Uh, I spent 30 years as a reporter, and and really when people stand for openness and transparency, they also need to stand for questions. Exactly. What about the Kent Hurst situation? Was there anything about that that stood out to you? Well, he, he resigned. Uh, of course, he any public official, elected official, I think, has to resign Uh, in the face of very serious allegations to enable an investigation to take place. I don't think they can represent the people who elected them properly and the ministry that they are are in charge of. Well, very serious allegations hang over them. But once again, there was no firm denial of the allegations that I heard. And there was just the all step aside, well, there's an investigation. And... um, that leaves things hanging, and certainly if allegations were made against my client, I would urge them to, in the strongest terms, stand and, and talk about what uh, their position is and certainly defend themselves and then respond to questions, and there was none of that. Do they still have time? Does each of them still have time to... to um, they called you right now and they said, uh, Alan, we want to engage you to provide us advice would you say to them okay i can i can do that or would you say too late it's not too late but i think i would say you need to prepare for the results of the investigation and uh during the time of that investigation i think there's messages that you can deliver and those messages would be that um i firmly deny the allegations if that is in fact the case and that is the case here that i have stepped aside 
because it's the right thing to do while an investigation is underway. And I will comment after the results of the investigation are made public. And I urge that these the results of any investigation be made public. I have nothing to be to hide, and I will cooperate fully with an investigation. All right. Assuming there are people who are very nervous right now, they haven't been named by anybody, but they know what their history is, their personal history is, and they're afraid they may be named. Is it wise for them to perhaps call Alan Edwards at Peak and say, um, I might need your help? Yes, I think that, well, certainly uh, make sure that whoever you call and whatever you do, there's there's a need to prepare for a crisis, particularly if there's issues or threats in your background. And, and remember that these are allegations and they've yet to be tried in court or there's no results of an investigation, but there is a need to prepare for issues so they can be managed. And, mm-hmm. and anybody in this situation needs to have messaging in place and uh, and really a plan to address the issues at hand in the most appropriate way. And what I saw from Patrick Brown was that it was very hasty. It He didn't respond to questions. He was very nervous. And he left a lot of things hanging, which is unfortunate for his reputation. And what we're talking about here is reputation management. This is what it's all about. And a company like ours helps companies and individuals manage their reputations. And openness and transparency is what we believe in. And I've never had a client come to me with uh, a situation where they're, they're guilty of something or they've done something wrong and they're not prepared to speak openly about it. If they're not, uh, they wouldn't be my client. Mm-hmm. They need to address the issues. And there's something in issues management called when you mess up, you fess up, and you dress up. Mm-hmm. And what that means is you admit that you may have made a mistake or you have made a mistake, leave no doubt there, and that you're, you're addressing the situation in the most positive ways that are appropriate to do so, in order to ensure that it won't happen again. All right. Alan Edwards, thank you so much for the time. Good speaking with you. Well, thank you. Alan Edwards, the part, he's a partner at Peak Communications in Vancouver, public relations and crisis management firm. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Michelle Simpson with me now, a member of our Beauties and the Beast panel on Saturdays on The Roy Green Show. She'll be back later on, but we're going to talk to Michelle for a few minutes about the issue of being a member of parliament and a woman member of parliament and what happens as far as respect toward female members of parliament is concerned for the men in that building. Michelle, thanks for uh, taking the time early, and I know you'll be back later, but what happened the day that a caucus colleague of yours placed his hands on your shoulders? Oh, yeah, with a little bit of a massage. You know, you really have to, the expression is, suck it up, buttercup. I turned around and said, move them or lose them. And that's how you have to deal with it. But when I was an MP, it was quite rampant. And they actually warned you about it, but never gave you a solution. They warned you about it uh, when you were going through orientation. What was the warning like? What did they say? Well, you know, 
you got to pl- play with your elbows up and uh, the failure rate of relationships and marriages. A lot of it had to do with getting into um, situations involving alcohol. You know, everybody gets loosey-goosey. Mm-hmm. So I tended to avoid that kind of thing. Is it any surprise... I'm sorry, is it any surprise to you that accusations of sexual harassment or sexual assault would be heard from women working in the political environment? Now, I know you said they say work with your elbows up. We're talking about multiples of situations. This isn't the only time it's happened. Over the last couple of years, we've heard others. Uh, Is that that just the default way that some nights or some days developed? Well, I think that's part of it. Another part of it is what side of the um, House of Commons you're on. You don't want to be seen as a wimp if you're in government, and you don't want to be seen as a a complainer if you're in opposition, because you're hoping one day the party will take government, and anything you say can and will be used against you. Do I hear you saying that they discourage women MPs from publicly talking about being harassed? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Nobody wants any dirt out there. They would do anything. You know, you know I give tr- uh, the Prime Minister some credit for expelling people from caucus, but it, it doesn't go far enough. I find this really interesting that the, the, the party would say to a woman member of parliament, first of all, they say during orientation, play with your elbows up because you're going to be harassed. And yeah. then they say, I don't know if they said as many words or if it's inferred. Okay, okay, so you were, you, you were troubled, you were harassed by such and such. Forget about it. Keep it below the radar. Don't say anything publicly because we don't want it out there. So suck it up, buttercup. Yep, especially if it's someone in your own party that's doing the harassing. Wow. Well, that's a that's something I, I I didn't know that they would that they would do that. So we'll we'll have that to carry on with when you join us later on Beauties and the Beast. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Roy. Michelle Simpson, former Liberal member of Parliament. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Back to the issue of harassment, abuse, sexual assault, stories that have made headlines across this country. And there's more to come. You can be sure there's much more to come. And the question becomes, what are the rights of the person who has been assaulted? And what are the rights of the person who's being accused of being an assaulter? And one of the arguments, as you've heard, is that Patrick Brown wasn't given the opportunity to properly present a defense because he was convicted by two anonymous women. And the question is, why should anonymity be granted to somebody who is saying that person sexually assaulted me or sexually harassed me? Shouldn't an identification go with the person who's making the charge? What I've seen by way of communication from you in email and Twitter is that you believe there should have been identification to go along with them. This is the majority of people. But what happens in the workplace 
that's where a lot of this activity takes place. We know that. Leo Samfiru joins me on the Roy Green Show. He's a partner at Samfiru Tamarkin LLP. Uh, he's an employment lawyer, employment law specialist. And uh, Samfiru Tamarkin is in Toronto and in Vancouver. Leo, it's always um, it's always illuminating. It's always informative to talk to you about these things. So these issues, these stories, uh, are, are you seeing an increase since this, since the Me Too campaign began? Are you seeing an increase in numbers of clients, potential clients, calling with sexual harassment, sexual assault claims? Roy, absolutely. Since uh, the the Me Too campaign started, since uh, the the story started coming up in the in the media over the past few months, I certainly have. I've been getting a lot of calls, both from individuals who believe and feel that they've been mistreated in the workplace, harassed, whether sexual harassment or otherwise. But I've also been receiving a lot of calls from employers who are saying, these allegations are being leveled against me or against one of my uh, managers, and and, and how do we deal with those? It's a common, prominent issue. It's really brought to the fore the fact that that these issues are not rare, Uh, and and, uh, now a lot of companies are trying to figure out how to deal with that while you know, maintaining confidentiality, maintaining respect for those who may have been uh, harassed, yet still trying to run and operate a business, and it's a very difficult balancing act. Is sexual harassment sexual harassment? In other words, the definition is the same wherever you are, whether you're in a place of employment or whether you're in Canada's parliament or whether you're in a, in a bar somewhere across this country. Is sexual harassment sexual harassment? Well, the, the short answer is yes, in the sense that in terms of what the law defines sexual harassment to be, that doesn't change. It doesn't change based on who you are, where you work, and, and who the, the, the victim uh, supposedly is. It, it's a, a treatment of sexual nature that would be considered to be unwelcome and inappropriate. But where it does differ, where we do have different rules, if not in writing in, in practical terms, is when it comes to public figures. And I've said this before, and maybe even talked to you about this before on the show, when it comes to public figures, whether you're a celebrity or a political figure like Mr. Brown, different rules apply because at that point, we actually care what the public thinks and what the public perceives. Where if I'm a small employer and I have an employee that's been uh, accused of being harassed, uh, harassing someone, I can deal with that within the confines of my business. I don't have to think about the public at large. And that's where the different rules happen when we do care about public at large. Now, action has to be taken because we're lasting an employer that is in the public or that is in the public domain can't afford to have done is to be seen as being lax, to be seen as not having acted. So as a practical matter, we do see different rules when it comes to those in the public figure. So if you're a public figure, the, the, the public, be it on social media or, or other opportunities, they become essentially the, the judge and the jury. Yeah, as, as inappropriate that is, that is, and let me make it clear, I think it's perfectly inappropriate. That said, if, if I'm a company and I have my celebrity uh, employee who's in the media or maybe I'm a party and have a, my, my head of my political party uh, in the media and he's being accused, then I have to do something because what I care about is what the public thinks. If I'm in the business of making sure the public supports me, yeah. then how can I ever do anything to upset that public? And laws are have to, have to be put aside at that point. Definitions of sexual harassment have to be put aside. Uh, and as wrong as that is, I don't know that there's something else 
that one could do in that situation. It's amazing that people haven't learned yet, that they haven't learned. And I know some of these cases are reporting incidents that happened 5, 10, 15 years ago. But, but it, I'm sure it's still ongoing. Um, but, but if so, someone let's say someone comes to you, uh, a woman comes to you um, Monday morning and says, "Mr. Samfiru, Leor, I need help. I'm at this company. I've been there for a good number of years or a long time, and I've been sexually harassed by this same individual, who's a powerful person in that company, for a long period of time as well. And because nothing's happened to him, he's becoming bolder and more aggressive. What do I do?" What do you do for for this for this woman, Lior? Well, the first thing I would try to determine is what what do we have to corroborate what's actually transpired, uh, and, and is it just uh, uh, one person's word versus the other? Is are there witnesses? Are there anything in writing? The other thing I'm going to immediately try to do is try to determine this: can this be resolved internally? Is there someone this person can go to within the company and, and seek help? Be it. Uh, a manager, an owner, and a human resources person, because that should always be the first recourse to give the company the opportunity to fix the problem, to get rid of the person and, and make the situation better. If that's not possible, because the, the head person is the one that's, being, that's doing the harassing, then at that point, uh, we have to contemplate uh, outside intervention. And what I mean by that is legal means, legal action. That may mean a legal action for, for uh, sexual harassment, for a constructive dismissal, which is a situation that happens when the work environment has become intolerable and the person can leave with compensation, and we can seek that compensation and removing the person from the workplace. So try to resolve it internally, and if that's not possible, we uh, resolve it externally as long as we can uh, appreciate that that there's the burden of proof here. We still have to be able to prove what's happened, and generally I'm of the view that a he said, she said type of a, a scenario doesn't, is not a good one for the harassed employee. Ideally, there has to be something more. Do police ever get involved? Absolutely. In, in situational, it, it, it becomes more than just harassment and into assault. When there's physical contact and, and, and physical uh, uh, power that's been exerted, then yes, in some situations, uh, the police would have to get involved and investigate. Remember, the police and, and criminal uh, law suggests that there's a different standard, which is guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So the police may ultimately feel that there is not enough to satisfy that standard and to, to press charges, but the person may still be able to be successful in a civil matter where it's a lower standard. But in many situations, the police do get involved, and we, we give police the opportunity to do an investigation and depending on the result of the, that investigation, we may decide whether to pursue the matter civilly. One more question for you. I've seen this in email several times today. Are there also situations where you might hear from men who say that women are sexually harassing them? You know, I, 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 that, that has been rare. Uh, and, you know, I've been practicing law for over 15 years, and in, in my first 14 and a half years of practice, I've only seen maybe one of those instances. I've seen three uh, in the last three months, and those are not common, and usually they revolve around this concept of, of, of power and inequality of power, and there's a situation where uh, a, a woman actually is the one in power and, and uses that power in a way that makes someone else uh, uncomfortable. I still think those are rare, but, uh, but it has, has come up, and I think in many cases, the men that may find themselves in that situation 
would find would find it difficult and perhaps embarrassing to bring it forward because we're so conditioned to think that men should be strong and powerful. Uh, so a lot may feel more uh, afraid or, or, or may feel somewhat embarrassed to say, I was the victim. But that is something that does happen in the workplace uh, to an extent for sure. Interesting that you've seen three cases in the last three months and only one in 14 and a half years before that. That, I think, speaks to the uh, the energy that this issue is generating uh, right, it's, right it's across North America, yeah, globally. Yeah. Leo, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Roy. My pleasure. Leo Samfiro is a partner at Samfiro to Markin LLP in Toronto and Vancouver Employment Lawyers, Employment Law Specialist, Leo Samfiro. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. I was reading the story of uh, Nadia Murad earlier this week. She's a Yazidi woman, young Yazidi woman who experienced absolute hell at the hands of ISIS. Her six brothers were murdered. Her mother was murdered. She was taken into uh, slavery. She was regularly raped and uh, turned over for gang rapes by the original rapist until she finally escaped. That was one story. This is, a, this is just a snapshot. Look up the uh, look up the story of Nadia Murad, M-U-R-A-D. It'll break your heart. And this was the hands of ISIS. And remember that our federal members of parliament, all parties, unanimously last year, 2016, declared that Yazidis were the victims of genocide at the hands of ISIS. And yet we have the Liberal Party of Canada, led by Justin Trudeau, and they're all following him, the Pied Piper, by agreeing to welcome to this country, welcome back to this country, individuals who left Canada to join ISIS, swear allegiance to the death cult. The Prime Minister says those that are coming back will perhaps contribute extraordinarily to Canada. So tomorrow on this program, we'll be talking to uh, a Yazidi woman. Uh, she's a human rights activist, and we'll talk to her about what is going on with the Yazidis. 200,000 200, of them uh, are without, without a home, without anything. And the United Nations isn't doing anything for them either. This is what they say. And Canada has admitted 1,200, 1,200 Yazidis. As the Prime Minister of this country repeatedly tells us whenever there is an issue that suggests that racism, to him anyway, suggests that racism may be involved, like the 11-year-old girl whose hijab was slashed twice by a non-existent male, Prime Minister tells us we can do better. So maybe we can turn around and say to the Prime Minister, we can do better. And again, this is just uh, one line, one sentence, two sentences, from a member of an international organization, Yazidi International Organization. Hello, Roy. I find the news about Canada's Prime Minister's decision disturbing. It is as if, with that decision, he's endorsing what ISIS has done to the infidels it is no different than saying, yeah, some people are worthy of respect and living in a dignified life, but that is only some people. So I want you to hear tomorrow, also, also on that show tomorrow, we'll be speaking to a Canadian woman who joined a Kurdish all-female military unit, mili um, I guess military unit, paramilitary unit, 
that was in combat with ISIS. So it's, I want you to hear that. But whenever we talk about ISIS, when we talk about terrorism, when we talk about national security, when we talk about taking care of situations that, that, that require proper addressing security issues, we like to speak with uh, former Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day. He's the former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, Canada's Special Forces uh, Counterterrorism Unit. And Colonel Day is with us uh, on the program today. Colonel Day, good to talk to you. Roy, sir, it's a pleasure to be with you and your listeners again. And I uh, also want to mention that you are the president and the founder of Radical. And uh, we're going to talk about, about Radical as well, what you do at, uh, at Radical and uh, strategic risk management training and innovation services. And risk management these days seems to be a, a, a growing enterprise. But let, let me start with this. It's a story I read this morning, saw this morning. Huge loss of life in Afghanistan, 95 dead, many more injured because of a terror attack. Who's attacking whom in Afghanistan? Well, again, as, as we see in Afghanistan and across the Levant and wider Middle East, um, you, you've got these disenfranchised, irrespective of what we want to call them, ISIS, ta- uh, Taliban, al-Shabaab, um, these numerous groups, Hezbollah, all across this area of the world where they have no opportunity to advance within society, and so they get radicalized, um, and they just start, quite frankly, striking out at anyone they can. They look for soft targets, they exploit soft targets, and they create these spectacular events, and that's exactly what we saw in Kabul uh, in the last 48 hours. 95 people. When, when you were, uh, when you were in, in Afghanistan and when you were in, in the Middle East, did you witness results of atrocities committed by ISIS? Uh, yes, sir. As, as part of our targeting process, when we are trying to uh, target that human network, you want to make sure, again, based on Canadian values and Canadian rules of law and Canadian rules of engagement, if we're going to, you know, target a, another human being, manhunting, manhunting, as we used to call it, we want to make sure that we've got a body of intelligence and evidence that says this is a player as part of a larger network that we need to remove from the battlefield. And so as a result of that, yes, we, we would often come uh, face-to-face with a number of very uh, disturbing either images or scenes or, or places that... Uh, that we've been. Colonel Day, if I may ask, how do you how do you deal with that? Well, again, you, you want to, and, and your team, we, we need to be shored up that morally we're doing the right thing, ethically we're doing the right thing, and quite honestly, we are the absolute tip of the spear, and the, the nation of Canada and Canadians uh, believes in what we're doing and wants us to go out and keep those threats offshore, keep those fires burning as far from the Canadian homeland as we can, and quite frankly, try and extinguish them over there. So uh, when, we, when you see the men and women in, in the Canadian Armed Forces and uh, across the other wider national security apparatus, those men and women are very much em- empowered and strengthened by the, you know, the Canadians, everyday Canadians, and their show of support for what we're doing and the risks that them and their families are, are taking on our collective behalf. And yet here we have, coming into this country, returning to Canada, individuals who left with the express intent to join ISIS and participate with this death cult in some of the circumstances we've described, you've described in, 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 in greater detail and what you've been able to do about it. But now the prime minister says they can come back here and they can create some extraordinary 
opportunities. And I, I'm wondering how you might, how you do, how you view this policy, and and what does it do to 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 this country and and the values that we that we have. Well, it, it's interesting. It's clearly a um, it's a political position. It's a policy position, as you've mentioned. And those political and policy decisions are often very well informed by the larger national security apparatus, that being the RCMP, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, and Department of National Defense and Foreign Affairs. So they provide input to the politicians, but at the end of the day, the politicians make the call on what the policy is going to be. So when I see a policy such as this announced, um, part of me says, okay, we, we don't quite understand that when we've got folks that are truly radicalized, and hardened and have left this country and this safe haven to go somewhere else to bring harm and destruction and do heinous acts, those people, generally speaking, are very, very hard to rehabilitate. And generally speaking, if you cannot rehabilitate someone, um, it, it becomes a situation, well, are we going to lock them up if they come back home and then pay, addition, pay additional paying taxpayers to keep them in our five-star jails? Or what are we going to do with these people? Because in some cases, you simply cannot ra- ra- uh, de-radicalize them. It's a very, very tough, tough, uh, tough uh, policy and tough um, process to try and work through. So when you bring them back, you're actually providing them with opportunity. Well, again, depending on as they come back into the country, um, how they are bringing, how they are coming back. Um, because in some cases, um, in some cases, and please don't misunderstand the, the comment, some of them are just, uh, misinformed or or youth or young men who just don't understand what they were really going to do. And those men, largely, uh, fewer women, you know, we can work with them, but I would argue in the majority of cases, people that leave to commit acts offshore, um, we need to find a much more harsher way to deal with them. Now, you, you know better than I, Colonel Day, that uh, the, the Americans, the Brits, the French... The Australians sent, told their, instructed their special forces units, the Brits telling the SAS this is the most important mission in the 75-year history of the regiment. They ordered them to go and find their, their actual national citizens who were joined ISIS and kill them before they could return to their native countries. Um, I, yeah, I, you were going to say something. Well, I was going to say, yes, yeah, so that's, that's very much in the vernacular known as manhunting, where you're, you're trying to take apart that network, right? And, and the U.K. in particular, the U.S. less so, and Australia less so again, but the U.K. in particular and France is the next. They have got significant societal challenges in their home countries, and they really don't want these cancers returning home to spread on their, on their home so- soil. So that is one of the... Uh, the, the considerations on those policies, and it is. It's about targeting. If these people are doing things, and as we continue to win and clean up in uh, northern Iraq and, and Syria, the reality is some of these cockroaches, and I, and I use that word deliberately, are going to scurry away and pop up somewhere else. So we're going to be dealing with them again. So you need to keep the pressure on them. And, and if, they, if, they, uh, if they're not caught, if they're not dealt with, in uh, in the Middle East, they may be necessarily have, have to be dealt with at home. A- absolutely, and this is where we start talking about what's uh, what's a true threat. And so, threats in the in the security um, sphere very much have two components: intent, meaning you wish to do something, and a capacity or ability to actually carry out your your intent. 
And often you will see people with, uh, with, you know, ideas, but they have no ability or capacity to go follow through on the plan. So there's a threat there. There's a latent threat there, but it's not an urgent or an important threat you need to deal with immediately. So these, these people who have gone offshore, who have fought and gained significant combat experiences in some cases, when they do come home, they have not only intent, they actually do have some abilities. They've learned a few things while they've been over doing what they've been doing in the Middle East. So they could be a match for a local police department. They could very much be a match for a local police department. They could be a match, quite frankly, for the national level, because these are these can be those lone wolf actors, which are very, very difficult to track and stay in front of. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. The Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day retired former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2 and the founder of Reticle, and it's uh, reticle.ca, company security officer, and I'm just reading this from uh, Reticle's information. Reticle believes that our proven approach to solving wicked problems cultivated and refined over decades of service in Canada's first-tier special operations unit can help others in navigating today's highly ambiguous, networked, and complex global environment. Colonel Day, it is a complex global environment. And where does your company come into play as far as engaging with Canadians and Canadian companies and others who might look to you for advice and and, uh, and information and training in a world that is, frankly, increasingly dangerous? It is, Roy. And so from a, from a corporate perspective, we deal with individual Canadians and families. We deal with corporations, large corporations across many different sectors, and we do deal with uh, municipal, provincial, and federal-level law enforcement and uh, security actors, and we we help them based on what we learned and our team learned over decades in in JTF2. And a lot of that is about a proven process that enables our operators in in the special operations world to prosecute those missions of the highest national security concerns and, quite frankly, um, win win in that space. And so this weekend, as a simple example, we have the Smith School of Business from Queen's University. This is a top 50 in the world business school. And we have approximately 55 of their students with us for the entire weekend. And they are learning about leadership, uh, teamwork, and how you work in an ambiguous 21st environment and how you network and just solve problems. And we've got them all weekend, and this is a, we've got a partnership with Smith. So I use that as one example, because many people look at us and think we're doing security things. Yes, we do, but we also help other Canadians with other, like you said, wicked problems or challenges. So what are, this, what are the wicked problems that you face? And I, I understand that when you're out in the, in the field and you have decisions to make, and you're facing, uh, you, you can plan and you can, uh, you can have your operations uh, set as much as possible, but variables appear and change the whole situation, and, and you have to have to react immediately and still win in that space, as you said. So, what are the, what are the wicked problems that that that, that, that you face? Well, again, an, an example from a special operation. Um, you know, if, if you are taking a very small team and you are deploying it across the globe into a relatively hostile environment to gather information and to ultimately rescue a Canadian hostage, that small team needs to function as, quite frankly, one cell. And they need to be able to work and rapidly absorb information and make decisions in the moment that sets the team up for success. 
And we, we are a firm believer that there's almost no problem, no security problem within reason, that six of the people, when they are focused on it, they come together, they think through it, and they believe in the mission, those six men or women can uh, resolve most national security challenges if enabled by the, the larger organizations. All right. And so you're, it's radical.ca. That is the, uh, the website. Colonel Day, JTF2, as you've said, has domestic responsibilities. What sort of plausible scenario in 2018 might see the deployment of JTF2 internally in this country? Well, we, we talked about Kabul, for example, at the top of the, the, the show. Mm-hmm. And if you look at those, what, again, are called spectacular events, those events uh, could be a hostage-taking. It could be a national security event like we have uh, coming up this June in the Ottawa area. When you've got G7s, G20s, Olympic Games, you've got, you've got national security challenges for all these, these major issues. And you need to have a, a network team that is looking across them. And then you need to have a surgical response. The last thing any Canadian wants to see is one of our uh, events, which may or may not be a soft target, being attacked, and then somebody coming in with a sledgehammer to resolve it vice scalpel. And JTF2 is very much a scalpel. It is the tip of the spear. It is about the surgical application of force when you are trying to resolve an issue that generally has uh, significant political risk and national security concerns. That's why JTF2 domestically is working at that, that true tip of the spear for staying in front of uh, those those lone wolves as best we can in partnership with the RCMP, CSIS, and the broader national security community. Colonel Day, all I can say is thank you, uh, thanks to you, and thanks to your JTF2 unit for keeping us safe and being out on the tip of the spear. Thanks for the time today. Always good speaking with you, sir. You too, sir. Have a great weekend. Steve Day, Colonel Steve Day from uh, Joint Task Force 2, radical.ca is his website. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.